in really quickly. Uh, reminder that on Friday, you have your midterm. Okay. If you're not going to be here on Friday, I know some of you guys like leave early for vacation or something like that. If you're not going to be here on Friday, I would suggest talking to me and taking it earlier because, um, you know, I've had students in the past that are like, oh, I'm going to miss that day and then make it up afterwards because I'll have all of that free time to study. No one ever studies. You don't want to study on your break. You shouldn't, right? Uh, if, you, if you're someone that tries that strategy, the grades are always low. It gives you time to forget things. So um, if you need to take it on Thursday, we can do that. Thursday, I'm going to plan to have as a review day, and I'm hoping that part of the day on Wednesday can be as well. So Wednesday and Thursday, um, I would really suggest taking notes, especially those days, and try to get to the point where um, you know, you're, you're reviewing those things, you're able to do those things really well, so that Friday will be a breeze. Um, the midterm is going to have some matching, where like I have a vocabulary word bank, and then definitions. And you need to be able to match the vocabulary word to the definition. Uh, there will be some true and false where, um, you know, I could give, um, I, I could say something about, um, you know, immutability means that God does not change. And would that be true or false? Immutability means God does not change. Would that be true or false? True. Uh, if I, I could give one that says mutability uh, teaches that God is outside of time. Is that what immutability means? So you'd put false there. So um, a lot of it is vocabulary heavy. A lot of it will be true and false. There will be some where I give a vocabulary word and expect you to produce the definition. So uh, I could give the definition of impassibility and could say write a sentence or two telling, showing me that you know what that term means. Um, there will probably be one essay type question that's worth 10 points at the end. And I'll talk to you more about that as the week goes on. Um, but, uh, it shouldn't, all things considered, I don't think it should be too, too bad. The vocabulary that you have to define is stuff that will have gone over several times. Um, the matching stuff really shouldn't be too, too hard if you have some general awareness of what the terms mean. Um, and then the essay question, I haven't quite decided what to do on the essay question. It'll probably be something from this week so that it's super fresh though. So um, make sure that you are, you know, uh, coming in prepared for that. Like I said, Wednesday and Thursday, we can do some review to make sure that we're prepared. Uh, I know a couple of you guys came into school late and uh, you'll have a modified version of the test. Like, um, I'm not going to hold you accountable for the first two weeks of school if you weren't here for that. So, um, you know, I, I have to do a little bit of editing on that. But, um, yeah, we should be well prepared for it. Um, this week, what we are covering this week, um, the, entire, the entire time, uh, is the doctrine of sin. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump in to talk about sin. One last thing. Um, if you want 10 points of extra credit on your midterm, what can you do this week? Recite the Apostles' Creed to me. All right? That runs out beginning of class on Friday. So don't come to class on Friday and then say, oh, I know it. Uh, it's time to take the test. So do it before you come to class on Friday. You can do it in the big room. You can do it during break. 
Um, if you see me here after fourth period, that's probably not a great time to do it, but you can ask. Uh, it might be nice. Uh, usually I'm working on other stuff, but um, you, can, you can do that at some point in the next few days, and that will give you 10 points on the midterm. So I'd take advantage of that. So I'll pray for us, and then we will open up. Father, we come to you this morning, and we admit that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we thank you that there is good news, that all can find redemption uh, through the the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think about sin, we pray that you would make it a a horrible thing in our eyes. Uh, As we think about the consequences and effects of sin, we pray that you uh, would help us understand and appreciate more deeply what it is that Christ has done for us in saving us from sin. For it's in the name of Christ that we ask and pray. Amen. So 9.1, title, sin, sin, all right, yes. Um, how would you define sin? Yeah, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Greek word for sin, um, whenever we talk about the doctrine of sin and theology, by the way, we're talking about harmodiology. Um, comes from an archery term that means to miss the mark. Harmoniology or harmonology? Did I spell it wrong? Harmon. Oh, the I should go there, shouldn't it? Harmoniology. Um, missing the mark. It's a it's an archery term for like if you shot an arrow and you miss the target. Uh, what would the target be in that illustration? It would be God's law, God's standard. And you have lived your life, and you have missed it. You've gone outside of it. You've, you've, you've messed up. Um, so the, the doctrine of sin uh, is tied to us missing the mark. There are several different words for sin, synonyms that are used throughout Scripture. You have sin, which again means something like missing the mark. You have transgression. Uh, God has, has a law that he's given you, and it's kind of like a path. And to transgress is to go off the path. You're supposed to stay on the straight and narrow, and to transgress means you were going here, and then you went way over here. A transgression. Uh, a trespass. You have gone where you ought not to have gone. If someone trespasses on your land, that means that that property belongs to you. No one else is supposed to, to go there, and you have had somebody walk where they're not supposed to walk. A trespass means that you have done something you were not supposed to do. You've gone somewhere in your life you're not supposed to go. And so there's all of these different synonyms for sin. Iniquity would be one. Wickedness would be one. They all basically mean the same thing. God has told you what to do, and you haven't done it. Um. According to scripture, what is the greatest command? What is the greatest command God has given us? Yeah. The Lord Jesus is asked by a lawyer, what is the greatest command? And um, he responds by asking, um, or the, the lawyer asks, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. What is it? 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all of who you are is the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. Every sin that we commit is a violation of those two principles. If you sin, God has told you something to do, and you are not loving God because you are disobeying him. So any sin is a failure to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord Jesus will say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To not keep Jesus' commandments is to show a lack of love. It is to break the greatest of the commandments. Sin is also bad for you. It's bad for those around you. Throughout the Old Testament, we get a terrible number of illustrations of how somebody committed a sin that they thought really would only affect them, but it winds up having a negative effect on the entire community around them. So to sin is to break the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. What's the first sin ever committed? What happens? Yeah, the serpent appears to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. This is the first sin. And how do Adam and Eve fail to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? What had God commanded them? Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent tempts Eve and says, God did not have your best interest in mind. He said, if you do it, you'll surely die. But the serpent says, Eve, if you do it, it's not that you'll surely die. It's that you'll be like God. Meaning, uh, you'll be able to replace him. You'll be able to be your own authority. You won't have to listen to him anymore. Eve does not obey God's commandment. She fails to love God and to honor him as God. She also fails to love her neighbor as herself. She and Adam fail to do that as well. Who does Adam's sin affect? That's a trick question. Yeah, everyone and everything. One of the things we have to get into whenever we talk about the doctrine of sin is something, uh, a term called original sin. I can't spell today. Original sin. Original sin refers to Adam's first transgression, whenever he sinned in the garden. And original sin is the concept that is taught in Scripture that whenever Adam sinned, what he did counted for everyone. When Adam sinned, guess who else sinned? It's like all of us did. In the book of Genesis, as we were reading Genesis 1 uh, last week, we saw repeated over and over again that the plants, the animals, uh, the, uh, the birds, everything reproduced after its kind. So bird plus bird doesn't equal elephant. It equals bird. Tree, well, okay. This is a little bit of a weird way to say it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it, flowers do that weird mating thing that we all learned about in third grade and we've all forgotten, right? Uh, but hippopotami don't come from flowers. What come from flowers? Flowers. Everything reproduces after its kind. So Adam and Eve disobey God in the Garden of Eden. Both of them are sinners. Sinner plus sinner is going to equal sinner. Original sin is the idea that Adam's sin counts for us and that his sin nature is passed down to his offspring. Generation after generation after generation. Psalm 51 
is written by David, and it's a clear proof of the idea of original sin, where David says, I was conceived in iniquity. According to David, did David sin and become a sinner? He didn't sin and become a sinner. Instead, he sinned because he was born a sinner. Sinner is something we are born as because the fault, the guilt, the sin nature of Adam and Eve is passed on to their offspring generation after generation after generation. We are born in sin. Now, this is also taught very clearly in two passages from the Apostle Paul. The first one is Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes and he says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. That's Romans 5.12. A little bit later on, he picks back up in verse 15 of Romans chapter 5. And he says, the free, grit, the free gift that we've received, talking about salvation, is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Skipping down to verse 19, he summarizes his argument in Romans chapter 5, and he says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Yes. Romans 5.19. Paul teaches the idea of original sin in Romans 5. He summarizes it in Romans 5.19, and we could illustrate it this way. In the garden, one man sinned. Who was that one man? Adam. Adam sinned. And Adam's sin was passed on and it affected all humanity. He was our representative. He was placed in the garden as kind of, he was kind of there on behalf of all of us. What he did would count for us, whether good or bad. So when Adam sinned, that sin was passed on to all humanity. Everyone that descended from Adam had the sin of Adam attached to them. Paul says, though, that the way that this is set up has actually become good news for us. Let's pause right here. Um, Anybody look at that right off the bat and say, hmm, I don't like that very much. I mean, imagine this, right? Um, Let's say for your midterm on Friday... I said, I'm going to select one of you. And the grade that person makes is going to count for the entire class. So I select somebody. I'm going to choose someone that does good on my test. I select Lily. And Lily, for some reason, things just go sideways on that test. And Lily makes a 27. And I, I selected her, and I said, what Lily makes on the test counts for all of you, and she makes a 27, so all of you go into fall break with a 27 for your midterm in your gradebook. How many of you are going to be happy about that? How many of you are going to get parents to email me and say, that's not what? Fair. Fair. That's not right. Something like that. Now, we can do that same illustration a different way. 
let's say that I, I'm going to use Lily again because I feel bad. Let's say, let's say that Lily, I select her to take the test for you guys. And not only does Lily get every question right, but she does her Apostles' Creed extra credit, and Lily makes a 110 on the test. She's your representative. She, what she does counts for you. So all of you going into fall break have a 110 in the grade book for your midterm. How many of you guys are going to get your parents to email me and say, I don't like that very much. That's not that's not right. How many of you guys would do it then? No, all of you guys are going to say, thank you, Lily. Right? Now, let me ask this question. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Is it? I wouldn't particularly say either of those are fair. Yeah, neither of those are necessarily fair, but would you be upset with the second one? No. Probably not. Right? If you are... That's confusing because you're getting a very, 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 very good gift. Now, what the Apostle Paul says on this is he says this whole thing actually is sort of fair because Adam sinned. It it kind of counted for you as your representative, but you've added to it as well. You don't just have the sin of Adam. You know what else you have? The sin that you committed willingly too. So all of you have willingly sinned like Adam did. You also had his original sin passed on to you. So uh, if death or condemnation comes to you, well, you willingly turned aside and sinned. You can't just point the finger at Adam and say, well, it's his fault. You chose to do it too. So there is a fairness factor there. But what Paul says is this has all become very good news because we have a second part to, to the equation here. Um, how well did Jesus fulfill God's commandments? Perfectly. perfectly. So how well did Adam fulfill God's commandments? Not so perfectly. Eh, right, not, not so good. And what Paul says is you have the opportunity to have a new representative. Adam's your representative right now, and that's not going so well for you, but the good news is you can have another representative, and another representative you can have is the last Adam, the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled God's law in every thought, word, and deed, never sinned once, and if we have faith in him, then the same way Adam's sin was passed on to us, Jesus' righteousness is now passed on to those who believe. Those who believe would, would be uh, the people who make up his church, those who have faith in him. Now, um, Paul is very adamant that this is not a fair thing. The fair thing would be you've sinned and you get what? Death, condemnation. He says this is not necessarily a, a fair thing. This is a free gift of grace. Um. Grace, by definition, is, is not fair. But it's something that's not fair that works for your advantage. Grace, by definition, is getting what you do not deserve. Oh, think about it this way. Um, I had a... Uh, oh, no, last year, actually. You guys who were in New Testament with me, perfect example. You guys remember that one time where I gave you guys a pop quiz in New Testament last year and the highest grade in the class was a 40? You guys remember that? And what did I do with the test? I threw them, yeah, I, I tore them up and I threw them away and then took you guys outside and gave you a recess day. Do you remember that? No. 
Well, you weren't in that class, JT. Uh, uh, yeah, you were in church history with me, but uh, this was for New Testament. So you guys that were in, in New Testament that day, did I give you what you deserved? If I had treated you strictly fairly, what would have gone in the grade book? <laughs> the 20, the 40, the one kid I think missed every question and then didn't put his name on it, so the negative 10, right? Um, you know, those are the grades that would have gone in. But how many of you were upset whenever I threw them in the trash and then took you out to play? Right? That wasn't me dealing fairly with you. It was me dealing graciously with you. This is a free gift of grace, right? So this whole scheme has become good news to us, according to Romans 5.19. We had a head, we had a representative who did poorly, and his poor performance counted for us. And then we added to that poor performance by sinning willingly. But the good news is that in this scheme... God has sent a new head, a new representative, who did everything rightly. And if we have faith in the Lord Jesus, his rightness now counts for us as well. Somebody impressed me from church history. What's the word we use for this? Limited. What? No, not limited atonement. Imputation. Imputation, good. Uh, the idea of Adam's sin being transferred to us or Jesus's righteousness being transferred to us or our sin being transferred to Christ at the cross, all of those fall under the heading of imputation. This is the vocabulary word for that, um, made famous by especially Martin Luther. It's kind of an old word that has to do with the transferal of credit. Um, imputation is... The sin of Adam is transferred to me, or the righteousness of Christ is transferred to me. Imputation. Good, Claire. Very good. All right. Questions on anything we've covered so far? All right. Um, Let's talk about sin some more then. We have original sin. The idea that we're born sinners because the sin nature of Adam has been passed down to us. Um, in the book of Leviticus, that's what we love reading in our quiet time devotions, right? Just volume read Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, there is a distinction between two different types of sin. <clears throat> Anybody know what they are? There's a distinction in Leviticus between unintentional and intentional sin. Unintentional sin, of course, is you sin without meaning to, or you sin out of ignorance. Intentional sin is, or sometimes, depending on your translation, this will be called high-handed sin, It's whenever you know what you're doing is wrong and you do it anyways. Nobody's ever done that before, right? Right. Intentional or high-handed sin, you know what the right thing to do is and you do the wrong thing anyways. You rebel purposefully. It's very interesting that the Old Testament, and this bleeds into the New Testament as well, talks about unintentional sins or sins of ignorance. 
The Apostle Paul said that he was committing sins of ignorance whenever he was persecuting the Christian church, whenever he reflects on it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought persecuting the Christian church actually was honoring to God. You remember him explaining that in the book of Acts. He says, I sinned out of ignorance. I thought that these people were blasphemers, that they were heretics, and that it pleased God that I went and threw some of them into prison and that I murdered others of them. What commandments did Paul break in doing that, by the way? Yeah, do not kill. What else did he break? Probably bear false witness at one point or another. Probably at some point bearing false witness against them. These people are blasphemers, but are they really blasphemers? No, that would be bearing false witness. Um, Those people are actually worshiping the true God. So Paul is persecuting the people of God. The Lord Jesus shows up on Damascus Road and doesn't say, stop persecuting my people. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is he breaking maybe the first commandment? Have no other gods before me? He's not worshiping the way that he ought to. So over and he's, he's, the point there is he's committing really massive sins. But he says in 1 Timothy 1, after he's become a Christian and has repented of those, I sinned out of ignorance. But he sinned in big ways, too. Sin is such a thing, and we are so sinful in and of ourselves, that sometimes we sin without knowing it. And was, was Saul still accountable for the sins that he committed in ignorance? Yes. Yes. And in the Old Testament, whenever God's people committed unintentional sins, oh, hey, man, don't you know that you're not supposed to do that activity on the Sabbath? Oh, no, I actually didn't. They were still responsible for the faults that they committed. They had to offer sacrifices for them. They still have to offer sacrifices, though, which means that there is some sort of judgment for it. Jesus does talk about weightier and lesser matters of the law. Um, I think we also have to factor into this, though, okay, the two greatest commandments that he says that the rest of them hinge on is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. You know, like, I think today, um, you know, you could have a a new believer in a church who, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't know some of the commandments of the Lord and winds up sinning in ignorance. Is that still sin? Yes. Yes. But if that person has a heart to really obey and honor the Lord, that person's going to be correctable. That person's going to repent quickly and is going to move on. So, you know, maybe maybe there's still some sort of discipline that has to happen in one degree or another, but maybe it doesn't need to be as harsh as in other cases. But the the fact of the matter to, to point out here, though, is that sins of ignorance are not just looked over completely, there is still the important word in that phrase, their sins of ignorance. Where the, um, the psalmist in Psalm 19 will pray and will say, God, keep me from sin, meaning intentional sin, 
and guard me from my hidden faults. The idea that's presented in scripture is that we are so thoroughly sinful that sometimes we sin without even knowing it. Um, But a lot of times, whenever we sin, you know what's true? A lot of times, it's intentional. So, the good news that we find in the gospel is that Christ came and died for sinners. He says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, that he came not to call the righteous, meaning those people who think they're righteous, Pharisees, right, who think that they're so holy they don't need a Savior. In Matthew 9, he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So the qualification to receiving salvation is to acknowledge I am a sinner. Uh, I'm a sinner who has sinned intentionally. I'm a sinner who has sinned at times unintentionally, and I need, I need grace. Um, one of the really important ideas to cover right now Tomorrow, we're going to start talking about the consequences of sin. How sin leads to death, what sin has done to creation, what sin does to us as we continue headlong into sin, what it can do. Um, We'll talk about consequences of sin tomorrow. Something to point out right now that all of us know, but that we really kind of need to think about in a little bit more detail, is whenever we get to the New Testament, and it starts talking to us about salvation, it's really important to recognize that very rarely does the New Testament talk about salvation from the consequences of sin. So like, for example, um, there's only a handful of places where the Apostle Paul talks about being saved from the wrath to come. 2 Thessalonians 1 is an example of that. The Apostle Paul, in his entire corpus, all of the letters he ever wrote, He never mentions the word hell. He mentions judgment. He mentions uh, the wrath of God and how it will fall on certain people. So the idea is present. But whenever he talks about salvation, he never really presents it as you're saved from damnation in hell. What he presents it as, more often than not, is you are saved from what? Sin. Not the consequences of sin, but from sin itself. Now, that, you might be thinking, that's kind of a distinction without a difference. It's really not. Because how often in churches do we hear, you know, Christ came and he died for us and now we're saved from hell forevermore. And and that's about as far as we get. The New Testament's emphasis is on the fact that you're not only saved from the consequences of sin, damnation, alienation from God, hell, things like that, but that you are actually saved from sin itself. Because in the New Testament, sin is presented as something that has enslaved you. It's presented as something that is bad for you and that wants your ultimate destruction. It's it's a bad thing that is trying to exercise power over you. Romans chapter 6 talks about how all of us, since we're born sinners, are slaves of sin. We can't escape on our own. We need God to be our deliverer. Sin leads us to death. 
It has a reward for you at the end. Romans 6.23, the wages, the payment of sin is death. Sin is a tool. It's presented in the New Testament as a tool used by Satan. And his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy in John chapter 10. And so whenever we talk about salvation in the New Testament, we don't see an emphasis on you're saved from the consequences of sin. That is true, and that is important. But the emphasis primarily falls on you are saved from sin itself. You're free from bondage to it. Originally, you were enslaved to sin, and people who are enslaved to sin, guess what they do? They sin. They follow the, that, the pattern of sin that is bad for them and leads to their destruction. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ has rescued you from that, and he's given you grace to start saying no to sin and yes to holiness. And the great Christian hope is that one day we'll appear before Jesus in glory. And 1 John 3, verse 2, says that in that day we will look him in the face, we will see him as he is, and we will be made as he is. <clears throat> will be conformed to the image of Christ, will be made morally pure, just like he is morally pure. The, the great hope of salvation is that a day is coming when there is no more sin in us. It's not only that we have a get-out-of-hell-free card, but that there is a transformation that happens, that this evil power that lurks inside of us that we call sin, that has enslaved us and, and tries to get us to do uh, things that are, that are harmful and bad for us, tries to get us to rebel against the Lord, a day's coming when that will be purged from us. Us being. Huh? Us being. I, don't, I don't know what you're asking. Those who believe on Christ. Right. So, the, the emphasis of the New Testament is again on salvation from sin not only on being saved from its consequences. Does that make sense? If you were with me in New Testament, you probably saw that, where Paul will go through like this huge presentation of the gospel, and then he'll talk about the chief end of the gospel, like Colossians 1.22. He goes through this huge gospel presentation, and he says, and Jesus did all of that so that one day you'll appear before God holy and blameless and above reproach. Notice that he doesn't say Jesus did all of that just so that you don't have to spend eternity in hell. He did it so that you'll be transformed into a person that can be described by the words holy, blameless, and above reproach. Jude 22, uh, or sorry, Jude 24 and 25, there at the very end of Jude, talks using the same language about how Christ and his gospel is, is leading us to the moment. That is the chief end of the gospel, is being presented before God as someone totally blameless, totally righteous, totally sinless. So it's not only saved from consequences of sin, but saved from sin itself. Um, to kind of prepare us for tomorrow, actually... Let's run through the Ten Commandments really quickly. Since we're talking about sin, we've talked about the two greatest commandments, uh, which is love God with all that you are, um, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, the law of God, all of his commandments are kind of summarized in Exodus chapter 20 in, in the Ten Commandments. Um, who knows what the first one is? 
Yeah, uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, literally, the Hebrew idiom is, you shall have no other gods before my face. So, um, sometimes we hear no other gods before me, and that kind of sounds like, okay, I have a list, and God has to be at the top, but maybe other things lower. Is that how the first commandment works? That's what Israel tries to do. God's our main God, but we're also going to worship Bel, and then we're also going to worship Moloch. Uh, is that okay? No. Whenever it says, you shall have no other gods before me, literally in Hebrew, it says, you shall have no other gods before my face. Where does God's face see? Everywhere. Everywhere. So where should you have other gods? Nowhere. Nowhere. So no other gods. Idolatry, or just failing to worship the one true God. Atheism is a violation of the first commandment. Uh, Commandment number two, what else should you not have? No, any graven images. Yeah, no graven images. Um, so the first commandment tells you to worship the one true God. The second commandment, uh, if you kind of make it a little bit broader, worship him the way that he's said to be worshipped. Don't make graven images. He's told you not to do that. Worship him in the way that he has told you to worship him. So, um, you know, there's a, a story in Leviticus where God has told the people how to offer sacrifices And two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, try to offer an illegal, improper sacrifice. And they're judged for that. Uh, We have to worship God in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, The way that he has revealed he wants to be worshipped. To to say, well, I'll do it kind of my own way, and as long as I'm worshipping God, he'll be pleased with it. Well, you might be fulfilling the first commandment, but you're not fulfilling the second. What's the third commandment? Uh, Yeah, don't take God's name in vain. Um, A lot of people think that that means, like, don't say, oh my God, or or something along those lines. Um, It's probably, did I hear an exasperated gasp? Uh, um, Oh, I thought I did. I thought someone went, Um, so the, um, you know, it's probably good in our speech to make sure that the words we use honor God's name. The, what that commandment literally means, though, what it, what it actually means, is whenever Israel says, we are God's people, they're taking God's name upon themselves. They're saying, we belong to that God. They're taking God's name upon themselves. We do that whenever we say we are Christians. We are little Christ. We're people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, not taking God's name in vain means don't say, I'm God, part of God's people, and then act differently. Don't be a hypocrite, basically. Don't say, I'm a Christian, and then live a life that is totally antithetical to Christian values. That would be taking God's name in vain, taking God's name improperly. So, um, you know, it would be the, the, the cultural Christian thing. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, uh, do you, like, do anything with your faith? No, not really. You know, that would potentially be taking God's name in vain. It would be um, what politicians do a lot. You know, it, it comes time for them to run for office and all of a sudden they're in a church and, and they're worshiping, they're singing. Uh, they don't care anything about religion. They just care about getting religious people to vote for them. That would be taking God's name in vain. Um, saying, I'm a believer and then living uh, as if you were not living as a hypocrite. I have a friend who, she's, she's rough, but um, she doesn't want to be a hypocrite. So she doesn't tell anyone that she's a Christian because she knows that her life doesn't reflect him. So she doesn't want to be a hypocrite, but she, 
think her son brings all of it to be true, but she doesn't tell anyone, so she doesn't. What do you think about that? I think it's weird. Yeah. What does Jesus say we shouldn't do with our lights? Don't hide, don't hide it. Let your light shine before men that they can see your good works and give glory to your but Father. She in heaven. Well, she should repent. And she should start doing good works. Uh, you know, she should, she should repent and then she should uh, not hide her, her light under a bushel. She also shouldn't let Satan get out, right? Uh, the whole kid song. You can, you can apply all of it there. So, all right. Uh, commandment number four. We get into two commandments about honor. What's the first thing we honor in commandment four? Honor the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. It's also a day of worship. It's a day when God's people are supposed to congregate together uh, to remember the mighty works that he's done. And it's a day when you're not supposed to be distracted by that, by other types of of labor. Um, We will talk in more detail as we get later into the semester about how the Sabbath commandment ought to apply today for Christians. Um, And we will not get into that right now because... Uh, we don't have time, but the, at least the principle, remember the mighty works of God, gather with God's people, uh, rest, those are things that we do see repeated that we can apply, but we'll, we'll get into application more later. What's the other thing we honor in the Ten Commandments? Uh, honor father and mother. Um, does honoring your father and your mother mean that you always have to agree with everything they say? No. No, you don't have to agree with it. Um, Honoring your father and your mother means that you show them due reverence and respect. Do your parents deserve a measure of obedience from you? More than a measure, right? They, they do. Um, they, uh, they are authorities that God has put in your life that you... Um, in New Testament today, we actually read Luke chapter 2, where Jesus, the eternal son of God, uh, it says that... You remember the story where he's in Jerusalem in the temple and then Mary and Joseph find him and bring him back? It says he returned to Nazareth with them and he submitted to them. He obeyed them. You think there were ever times where Jesus said, hmm, I know better than you guys about something? Yes. Yes, there were. But he submitted to his parents. He obeyed them. One of the last things he says on the cross is as he's dying, Mary, his mother, and John, the disciple, are there in front of him. And he tells John to take care of his mother once he has died and once he ascends into heaven. Kind of odd he has siblings. John's the one there. Um, the others don't believe until after the resurrection. Maybe that's part of it. Um, but from the cross, he again is honoring his father and mother, or his mother in this case, making sure she'll be provided for and taken care of. To fail to respect one's parents, to fail to submit to their authority, is sin. It's not obeying the commandment that God has given us. It's also not loving to your neighbor, in this case, your mother and your father, and probably your siblings, too, because it's breaking the peace in the house. Um, Sixth commandment. Um, Are you sure? It is. Don't kill. Specific, it doesn't actually say don't kill, though. It says don't murder. There is a distinction. Um... If you are one of the uh, people in authority in Israel uh, and someone murders someone else, that person may fall under the death penalty and it might be your responsibility to kill the person. You're not murdering them, though. So sometimes there, there, there is death that ought to take place, 
right? Uh, murder means premeditated slaughter of an innocent human being. Don't do that. Israel will at times have to go to war. There are just wars where in those situations, Israel will be called to kill. There will be other times where, again, like I just said, you know, someone murders someone else and will fall under the death penalty. So this isn't uh, condemning all killing. It's condemning murder. Um, Number seven, don't murder. What comes next? Yeah, don't commit adultery. Uh, Don't adulterate. Is that a word? Probably not. Don't commit adultery. Um, This is not loving to God, committing adultery. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the love between Christ and the church, between God and his people. And so if we break up marriages... Uh, if we do not honor the symbolism of marriage and sex, then that is not honoring to Christ. It is taking the symbolism, the really the most emphasized symbolism used in the New Testament to talk about salvation, and it is trampling it underfoot. It's blaspheming it. Adultery is a serious sin in the sight of God because you're taking the clearest expression he has given us of his love for humanity, and you're treating it loosely. It's also not loving to your neighbor, and it's pretty easy to figure out how that one works. Uh, don't, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Next is don't steal. Um, if you steal, it is showing a lack of trust in the Lord that he will provide. So it's dishonoring to him. It's obvious how that is hurtful to your neighbor as well. You're taking something that belongs rightly to them, and you're taking it for themselves. Um, don't bear false witness. That's different than don't lie. We'll talk about why a little bit later in this class as we get into some ethics issues. Um, false witness means, uh, hey, uh, there was a crime committed. Did you see who did it? Oh, yeah, Aubrey did it. Aubrey didn't do it. That would be committing false witness. It would also be, hey, there was a crime committed. Did you see it? No, and you did. You're, you're being a false witness. You're being called upon to help do justice, and you are, uh, you're, you're, you're breaking your responsibility. That is dishonoring to God who is truth, the source of truth. It's dishonoring to your neighbor because justice is not being fulfilled in your community. And then finally, the last one, and really one of the most emphasized in the Ten Commandments, is don't covet. Coveting is different than jealousy. There is a type of jealousy that is correct. We've gone over this before where I've said it's right for God to be jealous for his people. It's right for a husband to be jealous over his wife. Envy is whenever you start looking at another person's stuff and you start saying, I wish their stuff was my stuff dishonoring to God because you're not showing contentment with the things that God has given you. It's dishonoring to your neighbor because secretly in your heart, you're not loving them. James gets into this. He says the reason that you steal or the reason that you murder is because you covet and coveting makes you hate. You you start being envious. A way to think about this is um, at least in the, this isn't true for usage in today's world, but usage in the Bible would be jealousy is stuff that you own. Envy is stuff that you don't own. Jealousy is I'm going to protect that which is mine, and that is fine. Envy would be I want what you have, and that is a violation of the commandments. 
So my, my wife is my wife. I can be jealous for her. My kids are my kids. If someone tries to mess with them, I can be jealous for them. But if I start looking at the guy across the street and the stuff that he has, and my heart starts going after it, that would be envy. And it shows discontentment with what God has given, and it shows uh, uh, some, some negative feelings towards the neighbor as well. Tomorrow we'll come back and we'll talk about consequences of sin. So how-